0: I don't think, I don't think persona knows what a blackboard is, but anyway, we'll, I,
1: I <laughs> do remember using a blackboard. You could,
0: Welcome to Backup Central's Restore It All podcast. I'm your host, W. Curtis Preston, and with me today we have Persona and a guest. So uh, I'll, I'll have Persona say hi first.
1: Hey, Curtis. How's it going? Early morning for me on the West Coast, but I uh, hear you're on the East Coast traveling.
0: I, I am, although honestly, I've only been here a day, so I'm still on East Coast time, uh, both in terms of when I've been going to sleep and... Um, you mean West uh, so, Coast?
1: I could see that it's early morning for I you. Say,
0: yeah, yeah. I, I, just, I just meant... Um, yeah, yeah, you know what I'm saying. See, clearly, I, <laughs> I, I haven't even had my first cup of coffee, so it's a little <laughs> a little rough. Uh, and then also today, we have a special guest. He is a book author and spent many years at Pivotal and now is at VMware as a result of that acquisition. He wrote the book Knative in Action. Welcome to the podcast, Jacques Chester. Good day. How are you? Oh, I am super happy. And now everyone realizes that you are uh, an Australian. Uh, I do love uh, Australia. I,
2: I, how long? How long have you been in the U.S.? I've been living here for uh, six years now. Six years. <clears throat> and yeah, the the thing I'm most concerned about is that it's just started to happen that when I go home, people say, "Oh, you're getting an accent." <laughs> 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 yeah.
0: Yeah. You said, uh, it, it, do you do you occasionally slip up and use
2: an Americanism
0: when you're home as well?
2: Well, my, my Americanisms don't stand out too much okay. because uh, you know the, the the sort of the the aura of American culture is worldwide. What mostly stands out is when I slip into an Australianism here. One of my bosses has uh, a link handy at all times. It's a it's a sort of a dictionary uh-huh. translation. <laughs> Yeah, basically, you know, if we, we, you know, one of us busts out and starts saying, oh, gee, it was a bloody ripper, mate. And he, he sort of looks at us blankly and we have to say, well, no, it's not literally the act of tearing something apart so the blood comes out, boss. It, it just means we think it's very good. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny. I, I consider myself
0: an Anglophile and I spent a lot of time sort of researching the differences between American English and British English, but the Australian mm-hmm. slang,
2: is a whole other beast. Yeah, we we have a lot in common with with uh, with British English. Um, you you spell like they do for sure. Yeah, we do spell correctly.
0: That's right.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, and uh, did you? So you didn't you say? Are you originally? You said you're originally from uh, Darwin. Darwin. Yeah, Darwin. So you're, like like Charles Darwin, It was named after him. Right. So you're originally from Darwin,
2: and you mm-hmm. spent some time in Perth. Yeah. So I've. I've uh, lived in a few places in Australia. <clears throat> uh, Perth, Perth is where I ultimately got a got a degree, and I spent a few years there as well
0: working. So, so I, I don't want to date you or anything, but would you have been in Perth in the let's see, late
2: '80s? No, I would not have been in Perth in, in the late '80s, except to visit uh, to visit family. Okay, all right. So, so we might not have crossed paths. All right, all right. I, you know, I Curtis did, I is did now not... dating himself. I am now
0: dating myself. Uh, dating both yeah, of us, but, apparently. But
2: no, we some some sometime in the in the twentieth century got it right. Yeah, I I, uh,
0: I I did get to visit Perth. I loved Perth and uh, got to see an Aussie rules football game, which I just uh, and, and by the way, if you're a listener and you have no idea what I'm talking about, I have you, no idea what you're talking about. Oh either. my god, you, you gotta look. <laughs> oh my god, it's it is the craziest, most awesome. I,
2: uh game it's like uh go ahead the way i explain it to to americans before i show it to them is it's it's basically a riot (laughs) with a way of keeping score (laughs) it is true that is true uh it's kind of i describe
0: it i I think that's a better uh, description by the way but uh i describe it as like you know rugby and soccer like had a kid um and it fights everybody like it, 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 you know <laughs> it, it. It was. It's a really interesting, yeah. It's persona and and anyone else who has no idea what we're talking about. So, what would they? What should they Google or like footy or Aussie rules football, like on YouTube?
2: No, I say Australian Australian, Australian, rules, Australian rules football. football. If, you, if you, yeah, yeah. If you, th- these days, I've noticed Google has become very stringent in believing that it knows what you're trying right. to say. Mm. Uh, so if you, if you type forty, it's going to be you know saying, well, I searched for football, and then you tell it, no, really, I meant forty yeah. and it says, well, I searched for football anyway, and here's a bunch of grids. you mean football? Um, yeah, I, I had that yesterday. I was trying to search for something called road, and it was R-O-D-E, and good luck finding that because it thinks you can't spell it. thinks you're talking about R-O-O-D. <laughs> you you're looking, like, that's not what I meant. Were you looking for a microphone? Yeah, and then you try that. To, yeah. <laughs> Well that's the thing, of course. That's the other problem with the Googling, you know, and then you say road Kubernetes, it was some Kubernetes oh, gotcha. tool. And and then it just it just gives up on you and just says, No, I'm pretty sure you meant, you know, a thing on which cars drive. And I'm telling you, no, it's not. And it's like, no, 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 just trust me. I've got a giant, arrogant cloud of floats over here that says that I know better than you what you wanted. Uh, Google. So um, so
0: uh, let's Google. let's talk about Knative. Uh, what what mm. is Knative?
2: I, I always dread this okay. question because um, there's so many answers to it. But <clears throat> briefly, Knative at uh, one level is a, is a project. It's a an assembly of, of companies led uh, originally by Google but also now involved, VMware and Pivotal, uh, which is now VMware, um, SAP, IBM, Red Hat. Uh, I've seen folks from Salesforce, Microsoft, all over the place. Um, so it's an effort really to bring the two things. One I would say is it's to sort of bring serverless to Kubernetes, there have been several efforts on that front. Knative is not sort of like the first there. But second, also, it's recognition that Kubernetes is, is remarkable, but it's also never defined a clear line between what is for developers and what is for operators. Um, I spent a lot of time at Pivotal working on and around Cloud Foundry, um, which is Always had that clear distinction because one of its inspirations in design was was Heroku, which was originally always you know completely developer centric. They ran the stuff, they were the operators, and, and so it was all about the developer experience. Which means necessarily you have that clear agreement about who does what. Kubernetes doesn't really do that out of the box. Um, it just gives you a, a pile of lumber and some tools, and and off you go. You know what what you decide to do is is largely up to you. And so one of the jokes I make about that in the book is, you know, that this is great because you can and do anything, but on the other hand, you could and you did do anything. <laughs> it's a double-edged sword. It's, it's, a, it's a multi-blade football. <laughs> like it, it, it will cut off limbs you didn't know you had. Um, so a big part of Knative's vision is, you know, what if you could use Kubernetes without having to have a PhD in Kubernetes? Huh. Right, what, if, what if I could just get some work done? All right.
0: All right. I hope I like that answers
2: it. your question. No, I, I think it does. I think it does.
0: And, uh, and, and related to obviously to that question is that you are publishing, it looks like, um, uh, it says it looks like it's going to be published next year. Um, so you're start you're starting on this K native in action.
2: Yeah, I guess, I guess that's, uh, Manning being realistic. I am hopeful that I can do it before then. I would like very much to do it this year. Okay. Um, but, but of course, you know, uh, much as it, it comes to sort of like, yeah, I could rewrite that in a weekend, um, writing a book is also harder than it looks at first. So I'm in the process of writing it now. So there's, there's two chapters up on the Manning website okay. as as I speak that you can read. They've basically been um, gone through the the first stages of editing. They have diagrams. They have bad jokes.
3: <laughs>
2: so it's all official. Um, yes. At the moment, I'm in the process of writing the third chapter, which starts to get into some of the meaty concepts explaining, you know, uh, these things called configurations and revisions, which are core to one part of Knative, which is the serving side. Um, And I'm hoping to sort of hand that off to the editing process in the next week or so, and hopefully there'll be a a third chapter up there in the next month or so.
0: Okay. Yeah, it's really interesting that they're publishing it, like, online. So it's funny, I was was about to ask you what MEEP was, thinking that it was a Knative Mm -hmm. term, but it's the Manning Early Access Mm -hmm. Program.
2: Um, that's right. Yeah. So many, many have been doing this for a couple of years now. I think, um, the, the logic is basically, you, you know, you, you can get value from a book in progress, yeah, uh, even before it's absolutely. done. And, and this is particularly true for sort of emerging technologies. Um, but also of course it, it, it works well for many because you know, cash in hand is, is, is worth more than a good feeling about cash in the future.
0: And we actually have a discount code provided to us by Manning. It's pod restore 20. So, P O D restore, t, you know, the number two, number zero. And uh, you'll get a discount if you purchase Jacques' book via Manning's website uh, with that discount code. We also have five free ebook codes. And here's what I'm going to do I'm going to offer these five codes to the first five listeners that contact me. And, uh, well, there you go. They're just the first five listeners that send me an email and say, hey, I would like an ebook code, but here's my one requirement. You have to give me feedback on the podcast. <laughs> You've got to see that you either. Mm. And I don't want, I mean, yeah, okay. I want. Curtis I love Ford. it. I love it. It's the best podcast ever in the history of podcasts. Don't <laughs> change a thing.
2: I particularly like the giveaways.
0: Yes, I particularly like the giveaways. Uh, but if, if, if you have some constructive criticism or if you are, if you will volunteer to be a guest that, uh, you know, especially if you have anything, well, obviously you're not interested in the C book if you don't have anything to do with Kubernetes and serverless and all of that. Uh, so if you've got anything to do with that and you're actually firing this stuff in anger anywhere, then, uh, I, you know, we actually would really love to have you as a guest on the podcast. So. Five free ebook codes for the first five people that contact me uh, via, oh, by the way, to remind you, that is wcurtispreston at gmail.com, which brings me, which reminds me, I forgot to do my usual disclaimer, Persona. Uh, persona and I do both work for Druva, but this is not a Druva podcast. And uh, the, the opinions that you hear are our own. All right. So, so let's talk about. So I, I will consider myself a. Kubernetes noob. Me too. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, um, you're, you've you've got a little more than me, though. I'm pretty sure persona, but um, but but anyway, and 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 you you have gone past like you, you're. You, it sounds like if you're bringing the world of serverless to Kubernetes, you, so you're, you're. I think we're on the opposite ends of the spectrum on on this technology. Would that be fair to say?
2: It is, uh, <clears throat> I saw an article uh, a few days ago and I can't remember who it was who did a survey and they said, you know, rate your Kubernetes knowledge. And apparently one of the the creators of Kubernetes rated themselves as a 7 wow. out of 10. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that might be, that might just be be, be modesty. Mm-hmm. Um, it It's interesting. So the, the original part, the original sort of like core of Kubernetes, the the container scheduling component of it was simple to pitch right it's a container scheduler and it was relatively simple to understand and as it has blasted out in all directions in terms of functionality and capability uh, it has become more difficult to encapsulate what it is and what it's for and how to use it and what what the best practices are and there are so many people working on on kubernetes for so many companies now um, working on so many aspects of it. it it's a vast enterprise um, and it's, it's at one level very impressive that the sheer throughput of, of functionality, um, but sometimes, you know, being, being in the the midst of it, I'm, I'm used to a, a pivotal sort of traditional style of development, which is small co-located teams, <laughs> ideally. And this is like the other uh, extreme. Yeah. It is. And, you know, there's, there's, the same problems everybody faces as you scale up uh, an effort you know that it, it might be possible for for three geniuses as it was to start the thing but <clears throat> three geniuses don't scale uh, so you just you just need more people and more coordination and so on um in terms of expertise like, that goes back to the sort of the the original um vision or one of the original vision points for, for k-native one of the north stars is it's just too hard there was an to, to do Kubernetes uh, from from the beginning, um, like you, you can find ways to do easy on ramps. Um, I believe uh, VMware has a free, non uh, nonpartisan, if you like, or or, or non vendor specific. Um, I think it's called Cube Academy, but that might be something else. But but double check um, to to do a sort of a gentle on ramp to it. But there are just a lot of concepts. There are a lot of knobs. There are a lot of dials, uh, and it, and it can be really hard, particularly because of that problem of mixing together knobs and dials, which are really oriented towards the concerns of, of platform engineers and operators, and those which are more oriented towards application engineers and application operators. Um, and that that line has never been crisply drawn. So for example, as, as a, as a person writing an application, I broadly speaking, don't give a damn about where the bits live. I, I, I don't want to, you know, and, and I don't have to think about, you know, how many copies of it am I going to run? And you know, there, there's just so many things I, I, I honestly do not want to care about. Um, I just want to write some damn code. Uh, and one of my experiences at, at Pivotal was I actually started in, in Pivotal Labs, which is the consulting side. We do all the all the, the sort of the teaching you to do agile development thing. And there were occasions, you know, where we did we did engagements with folks we would spend most of the engagement trying to find a way to get the code into production. Like we would be (laughs) iterating very rapidly on the prototype, right? But we would spend months talking about how the heck we're going to get the code somewhere that runs. And they're like, oh, well, we, you know, we got to fill out the change request form and we've got to get it uh, capacity planned and we're going to need 16 VMs. And I'm looking at it going 16 virtual machines, like big beat. Why? Oh, because it's really hard to get the, get the paperwork done. So we're just going to take as much as we can now. Um, and then other other sort of experiences with with Cloud Foundry, um, where it would take, you know, all morning to set up. And then we would just get on with the job. And that's the experience I want to bring back to, to Kubernetes and that I'm hopeful Knative can help to bring back to Kubernetes is we spend less time thinking about all of the knobs and dials and just get back to... What does my software do? How do I design my software better? How do I serve my end users better? How do I deliver customer value, user value, business value without needing to read a million blogs and two dozen books and all this kind of stuff? Like I, I really miss the, the 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 experience of just pushing source code and it just works.
1: And mm. and so kind of how does Knative help with the operations side of
2: things, I guess. Yeah. So the the main thing at the moment that that Knative looks to do um, <clears throat> first is that most of the sort of the 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 primitives you learn about in Knative, being uh, service configuration, route revision, on one side, and on a venting, it's more in flux, um, are oriented towards the developer. So as a developer, you will, you will need to understand that sort of quartet for serving, for example, to understand what it's doing. You might need to know a little about auto-scaling, and I'll talk about that in the book, but you don't need to know it right away. And then on the operator side, there are you know, a bunch of knobs and dials that are there to tune the configurations across an entire installation of Knative. So, for example, the auto-scaler has uh, dials that let you tell it how aggressively it should do scaling, or there's a, a maximum permissible timeout value. You know, what is the maximum timeout you could set on any request? And that can be tuned by the operator. But those are sort of clearly separated. They're, they're in, a, in a, a different folder, it's a different kind of thing called a config map. Um, you can use permissions in Kubernetes to control it so that only the operators or platform operators, uh, engineers can, can set those as part of the installation. And as a developer, I, I, shouldn't care about them most of the time I may run up against the limit and then it comes down to the usual Go sort talk of talk to the operators and match.
1: try to get it bumped up <coughs> yeah. and all the rest of that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think there was a, there was a, a big push and it was a good push in, you know, the, the sort of the last decade of DevOps and like, wait, why, why do we have these boundaries and all these sorts of things? Um, <coughs> and most most of the boundaries that, that grew up between operations and development were were accidental and historical and and basically down to path dependency. In DevOps was a, a genuine attempt to say, like, what if we just talk to each other? Um, and in some places it's been success, and in some places it's been a failure. I, I think based on my experience, what made it a failure in so many places was that the problem was not whether people talk to each other or how they talk to each other. It was that the incidence of the cost of doing something wasn't falling on the right person versus the person who got the value for it. Um, so for example, if I am in a traditional situation and I send code into production and then it breaks, it's the operator who gets screamed at. Right? That, was, that was sort of the traditional means of things. And so there is no incentive for an operator to be friendly yeah. in that regard. And that's why they throw up all these boundaries. right? So the cost of something going wrong fell onto the operator. It should have fallen onto the developer right that feedback loop was was broken and my experience is that if you draw the a healthy simple clear contract between those roles then it becomes much easier you know if if the you know the performance and the the networking all that sort of stuff all, all of the the boxes you draw around the software of firm then operators can just sort of hand out boxes to developers and say knock yourself out um, so going back to the analogy of the lumberyard, <clears throat> you know, it used to be that in, in the olden days, everybody, first of all, had their own room. You know, computers were very expensive. You ran one program at a time. We always re- realized that was very expensive. And so we moved into a share house and we would like take ends with the dishes. And then somebody would get angry that the dishes were always dirty and that was the <laughs> operator. Right. And this this sort of proceeded through time and now we've arrived at a stage where it's possible to build systems where you show up at a desk and you say to the operator, I want uh, a two-bedroom, you know, with ensuite, uh, hot and cold running water. I don't need cable, thanks. And they just hand you the keys and they don't care what you do inside, right? You, you could be uh, ACDC and you trash it. You, you could be, you know, the the nice couple next door who go to church. Twice a week, and you go inside, impeccable, and there's there's flowers in the curtains. The operator doesn't have to care, right? They care about like paying for the plumbing, and and painting the outside of the building, um, but they're able to isolate you through that contract, through that firm contract of what is developments and what is operations. Um, so my argument has been all along that, that Kubernetes like that. And there was a point about three years ago uh, in the Cloud Foundry community. I went to a, a CF summit. And there was a there was a sort of lot of buzz on the floor, like, should we, should we replace the internal container orchestration of Cloud Foundry um, with, with Kubernetes? And so I sort of put that as, you know, should we use Kubernetes under the hood? And then about a month later, there was a, a KubeCon, and one of the keynotes was somebody saying, you know, development sucks on Kubernetes and saying we need this, this, and this. And so the way I characterize that is it's like, well, what if we had a hood? Yeah. You know, it's like one thing to have Kubernetes on the hood, and then people in Kubernetes land are saying, "Gee, a hood would be really <laughs> nice." I'm sick of, I'm sick of looking at the engine all the time mm-hmm. when I'm driving.
0: So, um, there's so much to unpack there. Um, I, I would like to go back to something that you'd said a few minutes ago, and it's been so. I, I am, I, you know, I'll just say it. I, I'm, I'm since I ha- I haven't spent time in, you know. Using Docker, containers, uh, and, and, and Kubernetes mm-hmm. in production anywhere, um, I, I get the value. The concern I've had historically, well, even to this day, is and and you touched on it is I don't want to care where the bits are. Well, I've spent my entire career only mm-hmm. caring where the bits are, and so my yeah when I absolutely. help me understand how Kubernetes and, and Docker and Knative, um, how, how, I, how, it, how it hasn't made things worse in the storage and backup space.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, I wish I could say that. Um, but, <laughs> uh, but, mm. it, but at some levels it has. Um, so th- this is interesting too, because this this is actually getting strictly speaking, worse with with uh, serverless uh, systems like Knative on Kubernetes. But we'll back up to Kubernetes for a second, which is that the the sort of the contract you have with Kubernetes is you give it the definition of a workload. You know, it has, um, you, I want you to run these container images. I want you to give them this much RAM. They can share a, mm-hmm. a disk in this fashion. Um, and, and then there's like thousands of other things you can twiddle, but let's ignore those. Um, and the problem, of course, for traditional ways of thinking about backup is that they can come and, A, they can come and go, right? Kubernetes only guarantees that if it crashes, it will recreate it for you. Um, But it might be recreated on a different node. So it, it may be that the software that was backed up on virtual machine number 27 dies and then pops up on 45. And so backup software that is meant to be aware of the individual software level has to understand that it can no longer rely on relatively stable targets in the form of virtual machines. It has to be able to understand that Kubernetes will place them arbitrarily. Um, that's that's sort of your your first problem. And then your second problem is that there's about a bajillion different implementations of, of those actual bits. Um, everybody on their dog has has donated, uh, what are they called, um, I'm having a I'm having a blank virtual no, volume, whatever. Anyway, so there's there's a whole thing there where you you basically you donate into the core of Kubernetes a, a bunch of configuration settings, and there is a page on the on, in the Kubernetes documentation where it's a single configuration that you can fill out, and you have to fill it out correctly uh, because there are a thousand at least hundreds of configuration settings for dozens of different kinds of disk types of of volume providers. Um, and suddenly, you care very much about bits, and, and as a person who has to worry about like ensuring that the bits are retrievable when they should be retrievable, um, now you have this panoply of things to to care about, uh, all with different characteristics. And so that's that's really the the if you like the big lie of of container systems has has always been, oh, the data will <laughs> yeah. take care of itself somehow.
1: Um, you have some magic person behind and, and the scenes trying to figure out putting pipes together, connecting wires.
0: <laughs>
2: yes, you know we don't don't yeah, you know you look behind the curtain and it's just a press release. Um, so the, the, that that has been an ongoing an ongoing difficulty. Um, I, I'm gonna go out on a limb here and, and although I work on VMware, I had this I work at VMware. I had this opinion before I did. Um, which is I'm I'm relatively hopeful that this will be made easier by the introduction of container runtimes that are actually virtual machines. Um, So you you can sort of distinguish between containers, the implementation, which is essentially using a bunch of different parts of Linux kernel uh, facilities to create the illusion that you have a machine to yourself, Um, and that illusion is sustained at the operating system API level, Versus the concept of containers as a unit of shipment and a unit of management, right? Which is, which is distinct from the nitty-gritty of like C groups in the kernel and all that kind of stuff. And once that distinction is drawn, it becomes possible to say, well, I, I do want the unit of shipment and the unit of management. That's very convenient for a lot of reasons. And there's a huge ecosystem around that now. But I also want all the things I had with virtual machines. So I don't want to have to have, you know, this very large... Um, API surface that uh, Docker exposes in particular uh, as a runtime. Um, I don't want, you know, I want the stronger guarantees that the virtual machine hypervisors give me in terms of, of uh, partitioning the workloads and securing them from each other. And I also want the ability to effectively, and this is where I'm getting to your point, to effectively snapshot it, um, to to take checkpoints of of my machine and to have stronger control about where the data lives and how it moves between nodes. Um, Virtual machines, like, it, there have been efforts to do this with, with existing container technologies um, to checkpoint them. There's a, a project that um, called Checkpoint uh, checkpoint Something in User Space, C-R-I-U, CRIU, um, and made a very valiant effort to do that, and it's very impressive, uh, and it basically falls on its face. <laughs> and this is a bold claim, someone will correct me, but it falls on its face as soon as you move that checkpointed container to another machine, right? Because there are a whole bunch of things. And more to the point, it doesn't move through time very well. If I take the checkpoint now and I wait two years and I try to launch it again, well, you know, like the kernel is ever-changing and they make no guarantees about lower-level APIs and data structures and all this kind of stuff. It, it might launch, it, it might not. But I'm pretty confident that the thing I snapshot with, mm. you know, VMware 6 is going to run on VMware 8 right? They, they're going to make that work. And, and it's easier to do that because the surface of what they have to checkpoint is actually much smaller. They basically need to have a blob that represents the RAM, another blob that represents the disk. Um, there's a slightly sophisticated thing to represent the CPU state. And broadly speaking, that's it. Um, whereas with a, a sort of like a container checkpoint, I have a lot more moving parts that have to, have to be lined up correctly. So in, insofar as the industry moves towards these virtual machine-based container runtimes, I think it will become easier again for data protection tools to connect onto that, right? Because the virtual machine is is a much easier target. Are to back there
1: up. downsides with the virtual machine uh, implementation with the containers?
2: Historically, the, well, the argument that it, against it, it was uses that it's a lot slow. more resources, right? Um, and that's yes, those yes, those those were sort of the two things. Like the the big breakthrough in containers was not. The idea of creating the illusion of having a machine to yourself, um, that's been a a quest in our industry since the beginning. Um, It it was that by using uh, operating system level virtualization, you could do things very quickly. So if you sort of dig into the guts of how Docker did it, and and, and Docker didn't invent it, by the way, but they they packaged it in in a new and and very impressive way. Um, If you dig into the details of what gets done at the kernel, I call it fork and a frock. Um, it is essentially a fault call and then a bunch of other calls to set up all the all of the parameters in the kernel that that will create that illusion so your name spacing and 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 so on so that the process thinks that it has a, a little machine to itself the thing that's changed though is first of all there is always a constant up, updraft from the people who are actually smart in the industry which is the hardware folks mm-hmm. um, and so that you know the overhead of a virtual machine <clears throat> doesn't typically grow much, like VMware and Xen uh, and, and you know LibVert and all these other efforts typically don't sort of like massively increase from release to release. So as a, as a fraction of available compute capacity, they tend to fall over time. Um, <clears throat> the second thing is that in terms of performance, uh, first of all, hardware support has gotten better for virtual machines, um, and so there are a number of shortcuts that a virtual machine can take That a container cannot take. Um, They can can use various uh, hyper instructions on a CPU um, that the operating system is not able to access. Uh, The second thing that's happened is people have realized that a lot of the assumptions that were around in the early days of virtual machines were assumptions that came from a hardware machine, which was, I'm going to turn it on and then I'm going to leave it running for a long time. And so the cost of a startup that takes two minutes, you know, is is amortized over the, the hundreds of thousands of minutes I hope that this thing will be running. And that that, that uh, assumption is not true in a world where things come and go quickly. Um, but also the reason that is, it turns out there's a lot of things that you do at startup that don't matter in the ephemeral world. For example, um, if you take a stock Linux kernel and you put it onto a virtual machine, you start it up, it will look for thousands of devices. Right, it'll it'll be like I don't know what this machine is, and I don't know if you changed it since the last time I started. So I'm just going to check for everything. If you have a VGA card from, nineteen ninety two, I'm going to check it, and we're going to play Commander Keen, and it's going to be great. Um, <clears throat> and you don't need to do that, and that takes a lot of time. So one of the things that that most of them do, for example, Firecracker does this, and I believe VMware's Project Pacific does this, is like we know what devices the virtual machine will have because we're providing that machine, so we don't need to check for everything. So that's one place which actually shaves a lot of time off. And there's a lot of other things too where you just drop everything that you're not actually going to use because you have strong guarantees about what the virtual hardware will be. Um, And it turns out you can shave your start-off time, um, depending on how you define the startup time, uh, down to at least Mm. seconds, uh, which is quote-unquote good enough for, for most cases. And I suspect that as virtual machine checkpointing becomes more common, you can then shave that further down to uh, milliseconds. So it's like, here's one I prepared earlier, right? You, you spin up a process, you checkpoint it. Uh, and then when it's needed, you, you basically rehydrate it um, from a, from a checkpoint that's sitting in RAM and that, that can probably be done in a, in a few dozen milliseconds.
0: I don't know if that idea makes me feel better or not better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, just the idea that, that basically the solution to, you know, to the storage issue in, in, in containers is to have them behave more like VMs. But, I mean, that, that sounds interesting. It also sounds, it, two things come to mind. One is that sounds farther off in the future. And number two, I'm wondering if to some people what you just said sounds like blasphemy.
2: <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if it does. Um, it, it's going to depend on the role. Like if, if you're particularly attached to writing Linux kernel, uh, you know, stuff that talks to the Linux kernel directly, you might be annoyed, but th- this, is, this, is a, this, is, this is not that far in the future. Um, you know, VMware uh, announced Project Pacific uh, last year. It's going to be in the next release of uh, vSphere, um, and that, that means that basically your stock standard installation of vSphere that you buy from VMware has this capability. It has the capability for each of its virtual machine hosts to present itself to Kubernetes as a a Kubernetes node. And and when Kubernetes, the stock standard vanilla Kubernetes scheduler turns to what it thinks is a Kubernetes node and says, hey, run this container. What actually happens is it creates a little virtual machine for you, right? And that virtual machine behaves in every respect just like a normal container runtime. Kubernetes has had an abstraction layer for this purpose for a few years now. Um, there, there was a, a great deal, and, and this sort of comes out of, of the usual source of all technical progress, which is which is vendor politics. Um, it, it is he joking? Um, it, it comes out of uh, you know disagreements about the scope of Docker and the design of Docker, and, and you might remember maybe three or four years ago there was an effort called Rocket, um, and out of that. Amongst other things, grew the thinking that, oh, you know, Kubernetes should be at least one level abstracted away from what it is that actually runs the container. And so what happens is when you have something that ultimately needs a container in Kubernetes land, it will send it to its node, to its actual you know, host that's going to run the thing, and then it's up to that node to decide what that actually means in its own in its own terms. So in the standard sort of... Uh, Kubernetes that you install, that'll that'll usually mean it spins up a container, possibly using the Docker code, possibly using another code. Red Hat, for example, have one that they maintain called Creo, uh, which uses the same kernel primitives as Docker, uh, but it's a different implementation. But it speaks the same API that Kubernetes expects, and so it looks the same, right? And and anybody who says that Red Hat don't know a thing or two about Kubernetes, and I'm a competitor, they're kidding themselves. Red Hat know a lot about Kubernetes. They they've got the runs on the board. Um, and so it is uh, with Project Pacific. They've, they've used the same API. As far as the Kubernetes schedule is concerned, it's all the same.
0: So speaking of you know, companies where you work, and you were, you were at Pivotal you know, prior to, to VMware, Pivotal actually has uh, a, a backup, uh, mm-hmm. I don't know what to call it, a backup project, a backup
2: product? Uh, Bosch, backup, and yeah. restore. Uh,
0: can you mm-hmm. talk about that just a little bit?
2: Yeah, so that that requires a, a a very brief foray into the exciting and, in my opinion, un- underappreciated world of Bosch. Um, <clears throat> briefly, Bosch been, is. And by the way, a, spell that, please. B O S H.
0: Okay. Oh, just just like it sounds.
2: Okay. Uh, yeah, and it's uh, it's a recursive acronym for Bosch Operator Shell. Okay. Um, and and the legend is that Bosch is actually a a, a slight iteration on Borg. Uh, a lot of the people who initially developed Bosch were were ex Googlers who, in one of these strange, you know, incestuous sort of loops that you see a lot of in the tech industry, were working at working at VMware at the time. Um, so it, it's it mm-hmm. someone will someone will draw a chart one day and it will be a it'll it's just like it'll be like wow this is a Jackson Pollock. Um, so yeah, Bosch Bosch is a sort of a a, a deployment tool chain um, for very complex distributed systems that run on virtual machines. Like you got, it, it emerged in the virtual machine era, uh, containers didn't exist yet. Um, and it's extremely powerful, but it thinks in terms of uh, virtual machines, a process running on the virtual machine, the volumes attached to that virtual machine and the network that connects all of them. Um, and so Bosch Backup and Restore was the recognition that people do like stuff to you know, be around when disaster strikes. Um, and that Bosch is capable of essentially going across the collection of virtual machines and processes that it's supervising and snapshotting the volumes, right? And snapshotting its own database. And um, in, the case of, in, in cases where that's not enough, you, you can provide plugins to do more intelligent things as well. Um, so that's what, that's what BBR, as, as it's usually called, was, was meant for. Traditionally, for a long time, we, we didn't really have a pivotal or strong backup answer. Um, it was sort of like, well, back up this thing and that thing and we'll see what happens. And we kind of got away with that because, um, first of all, Bosch itself in its day-to-day tasks of deploying and updating is, is just stupidly capable and reliable. Um, and second of all, typically the, the substrates you're running on, the, the infrastructure as a service providers, uh, vSphere, AWS, uh, et cetera, were themselves very reliable. Um, it was unlikely that, that an error in one of those would, would cause you stress. But it would still happen. You know, Periodically, something would slip through our extensive testing and you know, somebody would have a bad day or people would have uh, a change they made that went bad or they jumped too many versions and we hadn't tested it. Um, and, and really, you know, the reason you have backup in the first place is uh, it's, it's just impossible to see the future, but you do know something will go wrong at some point, um, and so that's why we developed BBR. Does that no, answer your question? I
0: think it does. Uh, and, uh, there was, uh, I'm not sure, uh, there was another tool that, that is coming to my mind, whose name is escaping me, and I'm trying to see if I can... Um...
2: Well, you might be thinking, in terms of uh, Kubernetes mm-hmm. specifically, um, you might be thinking of Valero. Yes,
0: yeah, so uh, uh, how is that different yeah. than... What you just Yeah.
2: Described. So uh, Bosch Backup and Stories is specific to Bosch as as a substrate. Um, so we used Bosch to deploy and update uh, and manage Cloud Foundry. We also used it for uh, PKS for, for doing Kubernetes. And we used it for a bunch of other stuff as well historically. But it never really caught in the industry. Obviously, Kubernetes uh, has really taken off. Valero comes to VMware through the acquisition of Bitnami, which was a, a, a Kubernetes-centric startup um, with about 100 engineers and a, a group of, of really impressive technologies, one of which is Valero, um, which focuses exclusively on the backing up of, of Kubernetes. Um, I, I have to sort of dig into it more myself. So, for example, um, I know there are people who have sort of built backup tools and what they're mostly focusing on is backing up uh the cluster state so they're backing up etcd which is which is the sort of the underlying data store which is one thing but then it's just like yes that backs up the cluster state but it doesn't back up you know the data of the workloads and so when you say you would know this when you say backup it's just like well a what is the sort of the breadth of what i'm backing up and and b at what level of abstraction am i backing up am i just backing up the control plane as ones and zeros, or is it the control plane in its own terms, or the workloads as ones and zeros, or the workloads in their own terms? Um, and that's that's where you wind up with this like, am I backing up a database, or am I backing up the volume that the database lives on and, and hoping I don't catch it in the middle of a right? That sort of thing. <laughs> gotcha.
0: Yeah. So so uh, and, and what I recall, so since uh, since that was via an acquisition, it's not a pivotal pivotal. Uh, specific tool right it, 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 it's a kubernetes no. specific tool
2: yes yes Valero valero is, is is meant to run on any conforming kubernetes and and does it all do and again I know you said you need
0: to dig into it yourself but it, it also talks or like does it try to
2: figure out the
0: the, the the underlying data structures of the containers as well or is it focused strictly on
2: no, I okay. no, I don't think it does. I don't, I don't believe that it does. Sort of like what you might think of as container okay. checkpointing. Um, I believe it mostly would be focusing on, uh, you know, sort of like uh, volume stuff. So that that sort of ties into into one of one of the places. One of the things that Knative makes more difficult for 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 data protection is that it is centrally about ephemerality. It's about things going away when you're not using them. Um, and that that very largely kicks the can down the road of like, well, uh, that's great, but where does the data live? <laughs>
3: yeah,
2: right. You know, that it, it's sitting in RAM and then the RAM goes away and and everyone goes, like, did you back that up?
0: Um China may be ephemeral, but the data is permanent.
2: <laughs> yeah. And so Hopefully. well, you you hope, right? So I I mean I'm I'm in I'm in, you know, the the trendy hip cool stuff, which is great. I didn't expect to wind up here, but here I am. But you know, my my last full time job before this was was working directly with an Oracle database and saying what you like about Oracle and and I could. Um, it's a relational database. I I trust it to to hold my data and I trust it generally speaking not to present me with fascinating. Uh, murder mysteries about why the data is not what I expect it to be. (laughs) And when it backs up, I expect the backup to be successful and transactions and da-da-da-da-da, all all of these fuddy-duddy sorts of things. Um, The thing about data, about state is, I I feel as though as we... I think the trendiness of of not thinking about it comes about because it's like being made to eat your vegetables. You know, a a relational database... uh, keeps on reminding you of the dumb things you're doing. So you, you go, I need this new field. And it says, "Oh, are you sure? Because you have 6 million rows that won't work if you do that, <laughs> right? And you're like, Oh, get out of my way. So it's like static typing. It's like a lot of things. There's, there's a lot of initial, um, you know, uh, in a, in a sort of a psychological sense, you, you're basically being receiving punishing stimulus from the system until, until you finally get beaten into shape to do what it, what it, what it expects you to do. Um. And, and so I think a lot of folks don't want to think about data. And the other reason for that is that, you know, when we write our software, we, we have test-driven development, all these sorts of things, we fall into the habit of ephemerality. It's, it's very easy to write a test for a piece of software that starts up, answers the test, and goes away. Uh, and then data has mass. You know, it has inertia. It wants to keep going in the direction that it's currently going. And the more you have, the harder it is to turn. And, and so we just don't want to think about it. Um, the first way you address that, of course, is you, you cleave them. Um, you, you probably remember the Twelve Factor application. It was a, a guiding principle for the architecture of Heroku and and for Cloud Foundry as well. Um, whereas Kubernetes is is sort of much more middle of the road. It, it it has the ability to do Twelve Factor applications where you have that strict separation of of, of state and functions or state and logic, um, but it's also pretty loosey goosey. Um, in the it's land up of to Toyota, how people was,
1: decide how to implement
2: it. <laughs> Yeah, so that, that's mostly because of the the pragmatic um basis that you know software that's coming in might not have been written for a 12 factor sort of approach. So in 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 sort of the first couple of years at Pivotal, you know, we had a a great deal of success in selling uh, Cloud Foundry, Pivotal Cloud Foundry. And we still do, but one of the things we spent a lot of time sort of uh you know, breaking the earth on was explaining what a 12, 12 factor application is and why you would want to do it that way. And, and also we had to ourselves develop, um, the, uh, corporate sort of knowledge, the corporate memory of, of how you take an existing workload and begin to migrate it towards a 12 factor, um, position. So, um, Pivotal's, Great strength historically is that it's very doctrinaire, and its great weakness historically is that it's very doctrinaire. <laughs> and so, it took us a long time to accept pressure from our customers to to weaken um, our stance on that. Kubernetes essentially is loosey goosey. It's sort of like you want twelve factor, you can do twelve factor if you want a, a grungy thing that expects sort of like NFS two point whatever, and you know needs to be on port seventeen seventy two and all this kind of stuff. Gotcha, I can do it. Um, which, which means there's no sort of pressure on, on the folks moving their software or very little pressure during a lift and shift, which is one of the things that makes it easy, but also means that you, you just sort of replicate the problems you had previously. Something like Knative is very much in the, well, you're writing it for Knative. Um, it's not well suited to the lift and shift scenario. In that case, you're, you're going to need access to all of the knobs and dials. But if you're writing new software, you don't really need the knobs and dials, and you, you can trust the, um, the defaults and the, the rails that have been laid out for you uh, by Knative. But well, the trade-off is that in terms, of, in terms of your data protection, you are in practice going to want to think about that classical, and it's it weird I'm calling it classical now, 12-factor uh, application, which is I need to think very hard about the, the data I actually want to persist, and if so, where it's gonna live, because it cannot live in the function. The function is going is going to go away, not because of error, right? It's not the classical twelve factor thing was like, you know, it will go away from time to time, things will happen. But literally, no, it is guaranteed to go away. Because that's it how will, it was developed. <laughs> yeah. It, it will be, you know, if the traffic dies off, that instance will be killed. It will scale back down to zero. So if you were relying on stuff being in memory, then you're in trouble. Um, and so that has the nice property at least that if, you know, people are using a database or, you know, they're using uh, a, a NoSQL tool uh, or if they're completely bonkers and they have a blob store, whatever it is that they decide to do, um, that at least becomes the, in a sense, the real target for data protection. Um, so your, your return point objective, as it were, will be somewhat set by that choice of persistence where the shared state lives. Um, the return time, is, you know, that's going to be a function partly of of how you did your persistent state, but also that's going to have a lot to do, depending on the scenario, with just the business of onboarding workloads onto Kubernetes, right? Just, just spinning everything back up when everything tries to do everything at once uh, at the same time. An enormous amount of traffic in a Kubernetes cluster actually goes through uh, a central trade point, which is the API server, mm-hmm. um, which is sort of like the shed. Uh, the shared blackboard for for all sorts of, of cluster global state and um, K Native is no different in that regard. It, it stores a lot of state in the API server. Uh, I have, you know, bones to pick with that, but it but it is the pattern that has been adopted.
0: I don't think I don't think Persona knows what a blackboard is, but anyway, well, I, I do
1: remember <laughs> using a blackboard.
0: So Jacques, this has been great. It's been a lot to take in honestly for being a, you know, an old fuddy duddy, uh, you know, I, I don't, I'm not one of the, you know, you, somewhere you said something about, it, I'm, I'm in the cool hip thing. And I, I, I was like, yeah, I am definitely not cool and hip uh, the
1: opposite end of that spectrum.
0: I am, right. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I appreciate your coming in and sort of talking to this old fuddy duddy on uh, some of the stuff. I, I am both encouraged and terrified all at the same time. Um, and, uh,
2: you know, Just the effect you know. I was going for.
0: So I wish you all the best. Uh, I, I hope it takes you. Le- I, I It took me three years to write my book, and, and I, I hope it takes you far less than that. Um, so do I. <laughs> uh, again, thank you for coming on, Doc. Yeah, thank you so much. Learned a lot.
2: It's been a pleasure. I
0: learned a lot. I, I'm going to have to go listen to this podcast again. Possibly I'm going to slow it down. Oh, you know, my accent's not that lot. thick and quickly. No, it's not the accent. You, you just talk as quickly as I do. And by the way, persona, this may be, uh, Jacques may compete with Jeff in terms of shutting me down on. on I know I was just, I was just sitting there. I was just like listening and I'm, I'm trying to, I need, I need to come up with an intelligent question, you know? Yeah. Anyway. Uh, all right. So again, (laughs) thanks Jacques. And by the way, thanks to the listeners. For, for those of you that have stuck with this, this is, this is a little long for a typical podcast, but I, I think there's a, some great data in there. And again, I remind you that you can get uh, Jacques, you can get a discount on his book in progress by using the code Restore 20 that's POD, the word restore, and the number 20 uh, as your discount code. And the first five of you that email me will get a, a code that you can actually get the ebook free so uh but again you have to give some feedback on the Mm -hmm. podcast and 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 by the way if you tell me that the the weak point of the podcast is persona that's totally fine and i'll I'll,
1: hey now hey now come on
0: make sure to subscribe to the podcast so that you can restore it all
3: there was a file but i system isn't worth a spit. Finally, I needed your backup. You had a chance to fix it. Instead, it's all jacked up. See how I'll write on Facebook about you. Don't underestimate the things that I will do. There was a file, but I deleted system isn't worth the space emails from you remind me of when they keep me thinking that we could restore it